Thanks for listening to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We pray you were impacted by this message. God bless and see you next time. He manages to pull off a different introduction every single time. It's amazing. Well, COVID. I got older. How about you? Seriously, I uh, looked in the mirror the other day. I see my dad. I don't know how that happened. But you know, what I have learned is that as I've aged, I don't know myself as well as I thought I did. Maybe you're like this too. I, I, when I was younger, I thought I understood why I responded to some people or reacted to situations that came up a certain way. And now with time, I, I understand that I'm suffering from a severe limitation of self-knowledge. I have to tell you, it's not only true about my emotional life, it's also true about my body. I've had this thing for 59 years. You'd think I'd know my way around by now. But I have to tell you that if I went into the doctor's office and he stuck up there a scan or an x-ray, I'm not sure that I would know me from you looking at the picture of what's inside. I mean, 59 years I've had this pancreas, but fortunately I've never seen it. So I don't actually know what it looks like, and I don't know the difference between mine and yours. Uh, what I, look, it's not a medical seminar. Hang in there with me. What I'm learning is that things inside sometimes come out in weird ways. John 19, uh, for a few minutes, is going to have our attention and I think there's a, a thought, an idea, a big idea that oozes out of the passage, and it's this. When people confront Jesus, usually the first thing that happens is they see themselves. He draws out of us who we're not on our way to finding out who he is. Does that make sense? So, for instance, Isaiah in Isaiah 6, great passage on worship, falls before God, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. And the first thing out of his mouth is, woe is me. I'm a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. Something happens when we confront God right up front. We see ourselves the way we are. And we see, it's almost like you're, you're on a flight. And I fly, but I don't like it. I just do a lot of it. I'm frequent and nervous. Is that a confession? I did about 110, 120,000 miles just before COVID, and I felt every one of them in that year, you know, because I have a high respect for gravity. A anyway, the point is that, I mean, it's an unnatural thing. You're in a tube. And if you really want to see something weird, you ought to go now. You stand six feet apart, and then you all shove into a tube, right? It's really hilarious. Anyway, the, the, imagine you're, you're 35,000 feet in the air, and word comes out that the pilot had a heart attack. Now, what normally would ensue is, you know, panic in the people. And then a guy in the third row gets up and goes, don't worry, I'm also a pilot for this airline. I know this aircraft. I'll take care of it. The, the thing is, you got a rescuer, but you focused first on panic, then on rescue. It's, it's kind of like that. So I want to take you to John 19, if I can, and, and I want you to see that when you open up John 19, you're in a story of Jesus' last hours that's already in progress. 
John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are the last hours of Jesus' life in the upper room when he's there with the boys and he's teaching them and he's telling them he loved them, he's washing their feet, and he's spending intimate time with them. And then he's walking down the side of Mount Zion to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. In John 18, verse 1, it says, and, and when he finished these things, he walked across the brook Kidron to the place Gatchmanim. John thinks you live when he lives, where he lives, how he lives, so he thinks that means something to you. But, it, but it's flat on the page now. So, so let me see if I can bring back some of it. The, the Kidron is a stream east of Jerusalem that takes the refuse flow of the blood mixed with water off of the Temple Mount when the sacrifices are made. Now, the week of Passover, there are many sacrifices. So that stream that's flowing down at the Kidron in John 18.1 is filled with blood mixed with water. John thinks you smell it. John thinks you know the smell of death is in the air. And Jesus is stepping over the blood of the lambs as he's making his way to a place of a public oil press. Gat is to press. Shemin is oil. When you, when you press down hard on olives, they exude juice and the top layer is oil. And Jesus is walking in, and if you remember the description, he is sweating profusely. Now he's with a group of guys. Ladies, just follow the story for a minute. This is what happens when a group of guys get together. Their friend is obviously distressed. He's obviously sweating profusely. He's having a rough time. So they take a nap. Because sensitivity is a big thing among the disciples. Jesus goes to pray, and the disciples go to sleep. Give them a break. They've been several hours in a Passover meal. And uh, accompanying that is wine mixed with water. Now we have four cups. It may have gone back that far as well. So they've had, you know, some, some drinks. And along with that, Jesus taught all those chapters. So John remembers Jesus was long-winded that night. Now you're at the campsite. You're laying there, and the fire's crackling, and you're not off. And the first time the boys wake up, Jesus says, could you not watch with me but for one hour? Guys, I'm in distress here. To which they went back to sleep. Second time he woke them up. The third time they woke up, it wasn't Jesus' lilting voice in the darkness they heard. It was the sound of clanging swords because soldiers of Rome backed it, backing up a temple cohort were coming to arrest Jesus. So we pick up our story in John 19. Jesus has been arrested. He was whisked up on top of Mount Zion to Annas' house, the household of Hanan. Jewish record is that the household of Hanan were not good guys. They didn't represent the high priesthood well, and they bought their way in. Annas was old. It was late. He was tired. So he remanded him over to his son-in-law, Joseph Caiaphas, who was playing the de facto role of high priest. Caiaphas's men will put a blindfold on Jesus and, who hit you? Who hit you? Who hit you? Who hit you? They're doing Deuteronomy 13. They're measuring a prophet, but they're having way too much fun. Jesus is held overnight. 
He's kept on Mount Zion, probably at the high priest's house. He's the agoronomist, the market official, so there's a jail there. The next morning, early in the morning, just after the rooster crows, Jesus is whisked over to Pontius Pilate. And we pick up the story in John 19.1 where it says these words. So Pilate then took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, now wait a second. I want to come back to Pilate, but I want you to follow that there are three people that are in this narrative that all confront Jesus. Remember our thesis? When I confront Jesus, the first thing that comes out is not about him, it's about me. And once he exposes what I'm not, he exposes who he is. So, so I look in verse 2, and do you see this word? In verse 2, it says, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. The soldiers. Here's some... Hardened men that look at Jesus like he's some kind of hapless and feckless toy. He's a meaningless prisoner. They don't want a relationship with Jesus. They just want to execute Jesus and get back to the card game. This is their job. They're not interested in who he is. They're just confronting their job to check off their to-do list. Drop your eyes for a minute down to verse 6. There's another group of people. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify, crucify. This is our second group. They're called the chief priests. Sometimes they're called officers. Sometimes they're just called the Jews. And that's a little bit tricky in the Gospel of John because honestly, everybody in the text is pretty much Jewish except for Pilate. So Jesus is Jewish. The guys who are following him are Jewish. The problem is, Yahudoi, the word a Jewish, translated Jewish here, is also the word Judean. So in John's gospel, he makes a distinction on geography where Jesus is incredibly popular in the Galilee, but when he gets down in the south in Judea, in Jerusalem, where everybody graduated, they're all alumni of Temple U Seminary, and, and he didn't come into line with them very well, so they have no respect for him. Those are the people that he's calling the, the Jews. Now, Jesus is an extremely disruptive teacher, and he diverted people from following their lead and trusting them exclusively in spiritual matters, so they didn't respond very positively to Jesus. So uh, I have a group of soldiers, and I have a group of chief priests, and then the star of our show, the Roman star at least, will be Pontius Pilate, who shows up ten times in the narrative. If you're eyeballing chapter 19, you'll see him in verse 1, 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, 13, 15, 22. He's all over the thing. John seems to be feeling like Pontius Pilate is the guy to focus in on. So let's walk through those three people. Back in verse 2, I want to come back for a minute to those soldiers. Remember we read about how they twisted the crown of thorns and put it on his head? Verse 2 says, they put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, as they slapped his face. These men, when you look in the New Testament, are mentioned in groups. That's how they hung out. They're not individual soldiers. They hang out as a group. And they openly mocked the very thing that was at the core of the biblical identity of Jesus. 
See, if you know the Bible, you know that Jesus was and is king. And that's the very thing they're showing no respect to. That's the very thing they're mocking. Have you noticed how people get emboldened when they're in groups? In the beginning of the internet, you used to have trolls. Now you have herds of trolls. To test this, all you have to do is put out there, I love Jesus, and watch what happens. Is their reaction really so different? They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a robe on him. They mocked him. Is, is it really so different than the world that we live in? Can I tell you honestly, Comedy Channel has on it some comedians that would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush the way they talk about Jesus. We have now a lot of people that talk about Jesus and Jesus' people in the church with a harshness and a bitterness that I've never seen before. Honestly, the soldiers made him a crown. They stuck it on his head. They mocked him. And then they put an expensive piece of cloth on him. You, you have to understand that in antiquity, to get threads that were dyed, it took a lot of money. It takes, it takes 10,000 little murex snails, little tiny snails, 10,000 of them. You have to take the snail out of the shell. It ruins this whole day because it kills him. But um, then you squeeze the bottom and you get a thimble full of dye base for red, blue, or purple dye. That's why we call royal blue, royal blue, because only royalty could afford it in antiquity. That's until the third century when they figured out another way to do it and the snail market dropped, but that's another story. The, the point is, the point is that, that this was a really expensive piece of cloth and they're using it to make a joke. They are drunk with a temporary sense of invincibility and they're singing songs of rebellion, shaking their fist at God, and they don't realize they're flexing their muscles on the deck of the Titanic. They're going down. And here's the truth. There's a lot of people like that in our world. You know any at work? Don't get mad at them. Beloved, we, we never, ever reach an enemy for Jesus. Only a friend. So we have to show care and not bristle. We're not called to fight for a victory. We're called to stand in a victory already won. And as a result, it breaks my heart to see people who really, really don't understand what Hebrews 9.27 says. Do you remember? It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment so says the word of the Creator. Maybe some of you followed the rants of Christopher Hitchens, who was the very famous atheist who wrote in 2007, God is not great, the book, How Religion Poisons Everything. Well, in 2011, he died. I suspect his argument with God is over now. Just before he died, in an interview, this is what he said. In whatever kind of race life may be, I have abruptly become a finalist. Then the guy who was interviewing him said, 
he took pains to emphasize that he had not revised his position on atheism articulated in his book, although he did express amused appreciation at the hope among some concerned Christians that he might undergo a late-life conversion. He laughed at their hope. Can I tell you, I find nothing unloving about the desire of believers that they had for him. They didn't want to win the argument. That's not what we're trying to do. They, they wanted to see a man that God deeply loved set free. And that was their hope. Now, here's my point. Brash men mock even the notion of God. But that power lasts until they take the last breath in their lungs. And if the Bible is true, and it is, the next thing they see is the very God they mocked. That's not funny. Look, we want soldiers to be tough, don't we? We want these guys to be rough guys. We want them to feel capable and strong and brave, but we have to understand something. I don't care how strong you are. You face the same six-foot hole everyone else does. You know, you don't know anybody who's 212, and there's a reason. Because everybody faces the same thing. In the Bible, you're either going to the clouds or toes up. One of those two things is going to be your future. So, in reality, I look at these guys, and I want you to remember one thing. They could mock Jesus, but in the presence of the king, no one struts in heaven. No one. There's only one king. Oh, I want to go down and just look a little bit further at them. Drop your eyes all the way down to verse 23, because the soldiers are still there. Look at these guys. It says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments, made four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. I want you to notice something about these guys. Not only are they hardened, not only are they mocking, but they came there and they wanted to take something from Jesus. They didn't want him. They were satisfied with a meager pile of woven goods that he could give them. This is going on all, all over. Church today, people will come in and they'll think they're going to come here to get Jesus, but that's not really what they want. Really, they want their plumbing fixed. Re re maybe it's plumbing in a relationship. They, they want a relationship fixed. M maybe, maybe their finances are in trouble. So they think, you know what, if I come in here and I spend an hour and punch the card for God, maybe he'll smile on me and fix my problem. They, they don't want Jesus. They want the, 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 the goose that lays the golden egg. They want the genie Jesus that you rub the lamp and get what you want. Guys, a lot of us started there. Thank God that he was patient enough to work with us to show him himself. Because here's the problem. The answer to your problem is probably not the answer to your problem. The answer to your problem, the prize, is Jesus. And so in all of this, 
They didn't get it. By the way, there was a soldier who was different. Mark 15 tells about another guy, another soldier. He's a centurion. And it says this in Mark 15, 37. It said, Jesus let out a loud cry and died. And the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw that he died in this way, he said, truly, this is the Son of God. Because the centurion looked past what he wanted and saw who Jesus was. I want you to be careful. You come to Jesus to try and get a healing, but I want you to know something. Good health will eventually fail. That's the reason you don't know anyone who's 212. Even if you get healed this time, eventually you won't. <sighs> Piles of money can be evaporated like that. You know it. You've just seen it in our economy. We're writing checks, but there's no money behind it. So here's the truth. If you came to get his tunic and his sandals, put the tunic down. Drop the sandals. You don't need the stuff. It won't help you. A hundred million years from now, it will only be that you knew him. Now, along with these soldiers, there's also these other guys in verse 6. Did you see them? When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. This is after he had him beaten. This is great Roman logic, right? I find no fault in him, therefore I'll beat him within an inch of his life. If you think like that, you could be a Roman. The Jews answered, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. That, by the way, is the only true thing they said. Therefore, the Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. So they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So they handed him over to be crucified. If you know anything about the history of this period, these Jewish leaders had absolutely no interest in maintaining the illusion of love for the occupying Roman army. What they did care about was they cared about control of the masses. They cared about Jesus' apparent ambivalence to their titles and their fancy dress. You see, Jesus, he didn't get all that excited about who they were. Perceptive leaders feel threatened when they stand up with their self-crafted religion and try to control other people. They feel threatened by Jesus because Jesus doesn't respect religion because religion is man's attempt to reach God. Jesus didn't come for that. He came to give you a relationship with God not based on what you can do, but based on what he does in your place. So they didn't get along. Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And then he said, if you really know me, you know my Father as well. See, here's the problem. If Jesus is the way, religious leaders have no actual authority with, uh, with which to control others. 
because they want to be the way. They want to be the door. They want to be the mediator. But, but 1 Timothy 2 says it this way, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. So religious leaders want to be the controller. They want to be the mediator, but Jesus already fills that role so they don't get along. Religious people sometimes use Jesus' words. You're going to see it all the time. Politicians use Jesus' words. Until they don't take them where they want to go, then they drop Jesus like a hot potato. We're watching it happen. So you've got these soldiers, and they want to push around Jesus. You've got these chief priests, and they want to use Jesus, but he doesn't get used easily. And then our star, our Roman star of the show that I want to spend the balance of my time on, Pontius Pilate. He's the prefect. Prefectus is just the word for the man who stands in front. So verse 8 of chapter 19 says, Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, wait a second. Pilate's the prefect of Judea, assigned to the Syrian legate, under the emperor of Rome, standing in front of a prisoner. The prisoner's not quaking or shaking, but Pilate is. Why? Well, a little bit of background maybe will help you. The charge of Jesus unnerved him. The charge was that Jesus called himself the Son of God. Now, after Caesar Augustus died, they deified him. They called him a god. So the sons of Caesar, or the heir apparent, is a son of God. Does that make sense? Well, Augustus had a problem because he lived 45 years as emperor, and he was the longest-running emperor. He was the first one. And all of his sons died. Some of them mysteriously, others by normal circumstances, but they all died. So he had to select his, his uh, stepson, Tiberius, who's already a crotchety old man and not terribly reliable. And when Augustus died, Tiberius became the son of the god Augustus. Tiberius quit the job. He didn't like being emperor. So he decided he'd leave Rome, packed up his little red wagon, and went out to the Bay of Naples to an island that's gorgeous called Capri. He parked himself in a villa on the top of Capri, made himself a forest around it, and played sex games in the forest with men, women, and children. And his demented, lascivious life drove him all the way to where he was like Solomon at the end. He couldn't order lunch off a menu. He was... Because that's what it lust will do to your mind. Well, Tiberius appointed in Rome somebody to keep the empire going. His name was Ilius Sejanus. You may never have heard of him, but he's important. Sejanus was running the government of, as the prefect of Rome while Tiberius was playing in the forest. During that time, Jesus was walking on earth. Sejanus got a little big too, too big for his britches and tried to take over and bump off the emperor and take his spot, but Tiberius found out about it, so Sejanus ended up floating in the Tiber River, which is what happens when you cross the emperor. The problem is Pontius Pilate 
because of the date of when he started in 26, would have been hired by Elias Sejanus. In other words, Pilate's hired by a guy who tries a coup, who ends up dead, and he's employed by him, and now it looks bad for him. All eyes are on these guys. And so when he finds out Jesus is using a title reserved for the coup maker, reserved for the heir apparent to the empire, he gets scared. Well, of course he does. He's watching his own backside. And in light of the coup, it's clear that he was so afraid. Now, here's the thing. In any way of understanding Pilate, he comes off looking badly. I mean, right out of the gate in verse 1, he has Jesus beaten and then admits that he doesn't see anything wrong with him. Pilate doesn't feel guilty. Pilate is guilty. A guy was brought into his court that was guilty of nothing, and he had him beat within an inch of his life. Verse 4, chapter 19 says, Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns or pressed into his brow as blood is running into his eyes and he's brutalized and beaten and they have a purple robe on him. And Pilate says, Behold the man! There it was. That was the big mistake. Those three words, a hundred million years from now, Pilate is going to remember he uttered. Because the biggest mistake in the passage, the biggest mistake was the one Pilate made. He saw Jesus as a mere man. Beloved, you can, uh, <laughs> you can get every quiz answer wrong on every quiz you ever take. I mean, you won't advance very far in school, but you can do it. But in eternity, the one quiz you don't want to get wrong, the one question you don't want to get wrong is who is Jesus? Don't get that one wrong. Because that has eternal consequences. See, here it is. Do you think that Pilate's going to remember, behold the man, when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father in Philippians 2? You think when that happens, he's going to be bowing his knee and recognizing his mistake? His big mistake was not looking at the true identity of Jesus. Guys, Jesus is no harmless man. He's not. The Bible says he's a king. The Bible shows him in power and might. The last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 says this. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And then in verse 8, he's speaking and Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, who is to come, the Almighty. 113 says he comes dressed as the high priest of heaven. 114 says his eyes are like a flame of fire. 115 says his voice is like thundering water. 116 says when he speaks, a sharp sword comes out of his mouth and he shines like the sun. Verse 17 says... Jesus is talking and he says this, listen, do not be afraid. I'm the first and I'm also the last. 
I am he who lives. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever and ever and ever. And I hold the keys of Hades and of death. Guys, don't be duped into believing that that little Hallmark card, baby Jesus, meek and mild, is all he is. Don't walk into the Vatican, look to the right and see Jesus' lifeless body draped in sculpture across Mary in the Pieta and think that's all he is. He's, he's a powerful sovereign. He's, he's a coming king. He's a mighty warrior above all others. I want you to consider this. If Jesus is the one our Bible claims he is, we will stand before him. We will see him. Don't underestimate Jesus like Pilate did. Don't judge him powerless like the soldiers did. Don't use him to get what you want and forget that he's what you need. I got to close this, but I want to tell you a story. February 1941, Auschwitz, Poland. There was a priest by the name of Maximilian Kolbe and he was put in the infamous camp there because he was helping Jews escape from Nazi terror. Months went by, and in desperation, some of the people tried to escape from the camp. But the camp had a standing rule. If anyone tries to escape, ten random people are named and put into a, a, a cage, and they are exposed to the elements, and they die of malnutrition, starvation, and exposure one by one. That's how they discourage people from leaving. Names were called to gather together those to put them in the cage because an escape attempt had happened. A Polish man, a Jewish man, his name was Gasovnicek, he was called and he cried out. He said, wait, I have a wife and children. Coming from the back, Maximilian Kolbe stepped forward and said, I'll take his place. And he walked in, marching into the cell with nine others. And they lived together in a cell exposed to the elements. And eventually, on August 14, 1941, Max, Maximilian Kolbe died. Many years later, BBC, they went to the home of Gasovnicek, the guy who had lived. They did an interview with him. He was 82 years old when they did the interview. He sat there and tears were streaming down his face as he tried to describe what happened in the camp. Then, then a mobile camera went behind him as he went around back of his house and there was this erected stone with words carved in it and a beautifully tended garden were all, was all around it. On the stone it said, in memory of Maximilian Kolbe, he died in my place. One man gave up his life for one other man and changed his life. This week, when you get to Friday and you confront Jesus on the cross, I want you to remember what he gave for you. And then I want you to do something. Don't erect a stone. Don't plant a garden. Don't give him a memorial. Give him yourself.
That's what he gave you. When you first confront Jesus, you're going to see yourself and you might not like what you see. But when you look harder at who he is, you'll realize something. He is your rescuer. Won't you let him rescue you? Thank you, Dr. Andy. Uh, why don't you all stand? Welcome to the Vineyard Church Weekly Message Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and challenged today as you listen to a message from one of our speakers. Prepare your heart and get ready to receive a word from God today.